we're going to now be uh, doing the reading for this evening. So we've been going through a series in 1 John. Uh, if you're not familiar with where that is in the Bible, uh, you just need to turn to the end and go back a couple of, of uh, books and you'll get there. Uh, so uh, we're going to have Johnny uh, sharing with us just now. Uh, he's going to read uh, from 1 John chapter 5, uh, running from verse 13. So uh, over to you, Johnny. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. If you see another brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin and there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who is born of God keeps them safe and the evil one cannot harm them. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true by being in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Thanks, Johnny. Uh, let me uh, just pray uh, as Dan uh, joins us in just a moment. Uh, so uh, let's pray for him and for our hearts to be opened. Uh, Lord God, we thank you for the privilege that it is to meet here online, uh, to hear from your word and to have it explained to us. We thank you for Dan. We thank you for the preparation he has put into this evening to listen to you in order that he might share something that's directly from you. And we do pray that you anoint his lips, that what he says now uh, would be what you have him say, and that uh, you'd help us to receive that word, help it to not go away empty, uh, but to come to fruit in our hearts. Uh, so please open our hearts and our minds to receive from you just now. And we thank you so much for Dan. We just pray that you'd be with him in this time to come. Uh, please help him to explain this passage to us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thanks so much, Chris, and thanks for Johnny uh, for reading our passage. And do keep that open in front of you uh, as we go through it, our last bit of our series in 1 John. Uh, but, you know, there was an airline uh, company I was reading about who a while ago, uh, when we could fly uh, without restrictions, uh, they put out this offer where you could buy a mystery airline ticket. It would cost you about £30. And you would buy this ticket. And on the day that you'd bought the ticket for this mystery airline ticket, you would rock up to the airport. And only when you got to the counter uh, would you find where you would be flying to. Um, Apparently, in one airport, there was 1,500 people who decided to sign up for this mystery airline ticket, not knowing where they were going to. 1,500 people that walked up uh, to the counter to see where they were going. You can imagine, can't you? Some people were delighted about where they were heading to, you know, the sunny beach resort that they'd always wanted to go to. But then apparently you had other people and 
where they weren't as happy with where they had their destination. They got some cold, rainy, local, dreary destination that they had to go and spend the weekend in. You see, there are kind of mysteries, aren't there, which, you know, might be good for a weekend. And we might like uh, elements of mystery and surprise. We might really enjoy that. But, you know, when it comes to the big things of life, I think that might change for most of us. Because deep down, we long for certainty and assurance, don't we? Especially at this moment, in the circumstances we're facing at the moment, most of the stress, most of the anxiety that we feel is based about our circumstances walking into the unknown. We're uncertain. We have no assurance about what our future may be like. So when it comes to the big things in life, when the serious things we talk about, surprises are the last thing. We want uh, to happen to us. But what happens when it comes to the biggest things in life? Questions about what happens when I die? Where will I go? Is there a God? When it comes to those kind of questions, well, the last thing we want is uncertainty, right? We want assurance. None of us want to take chances like buying a mystery airline ticket, not knowing where we're going. We would love assurance. And yet, you know, in the culture that we live in at the moment, some describe it as a post-truth culture. In other words, that to say uh, words like certainty and assurance, well, they are impossible to have. There's no such thing as objective truth. And truth is just relative to individuals. There's no such thing, our culture says, as as truth and, and certainty, especially when it comes to things like faith. And yet, do you know this evening, the passage we've just read out, the passage we're looking at together, do you know John, the person who wrote this letter? I think he would disagree with that. I know he would disagree with that. With the thought that we can't have any certainty or any kind of assurance this evening. In fact, in our passage this evening, John shows us, shows the Christian, how the Christian, the person who anchors their whole life on the person of Christ, doesn't have to live in uncertainty or nervously hope for what might happen in the future, but rather the person who anchors themselves in Jesus can have an unwavering and unshakable confidence and certainty in uh, their lives to build their whole lives upon. That's what we're going to be seeing this evening. And I've just got three points for us as we go through our passage tonight. And the first one is confidence in Christ, confidence in Christ from verses 13 to 15. Now, the reason that I say that John wants us to have certainty is because in our passage, John writes over and over again in this letter that he wants these Christians to know something. He wants them to be assured. He wants them to be confident in what they know and what he's telling them. In this, in our passage tonight, John uses that word know seven times. And the first thing in our passage that he wants these Christians he's writing to to know is in verse 13, if you look with me. He says, so that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, do you know, we might hear something like that. And I know when I heard this as I was preparing this passage and maybe we've been Christians for a while and we've become so numb when we hear things like this. Uh, You know, we, we think it's pretty normal. 
to read statements like this in verse 13 when we read our Bibles. And we kind of have to catch ourselves and think about what John has just written to these Christians. He's just said he wants them to be certain to know that they have eternal life in the future, certain now about what's to come later. Do you know, this is really what makes the Christian message so different from everything else. What makes the gospel so different from religion? Because religion will never give this kind of certainty and confidence about the future. Religion will give us good advice, not good news. It will tell us if you do this and if you do that, then maybe there will be a possibility you'll have eternal life. And yet John says here, you don't have to worry. You don't have to be uncertain. You don't have to walk into the future uh, blindfolded about what's going to happen. You can have certainty and know where you'll be in the future. John says you can have confidence that you'll have eternal life, not will have it. You have it. John uses the past tense here. You have it. You can be confident now, certain now. And yet, do you know, many people, especially in our, I guess, post-truth culture today, will hear John's words this evening and wonder how on earth he could talk about something so extraordinary, so grand, so extraordinary as eternal life and say that you can have certainty. How is that possible? Well, do you know, it really stems from what John opened our passage with this evening in in verse 13, what John has been talking this whole letter about. Look with me at the start of verse 13. John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Do you know the root of John's certainty is his confidence in Christ, confidence in the person of Jesus, who he is and what he's done. The Jesus who's not a myth, not a legend, But the Jesus that John opened his letter in chapter one, verse one, do you remember where he said the one that we have seen with our own eyes, the one we have touched with our own hands and heard, the one we've seen in the flesh. Do you know the reason this evening we could even possibly dare to think that we could be confident about eternal life is because we can be confident in Christ. That is the root of our certainty. That's what John points us to this evening. My confidence is in him and not me. Again, that's something that's alien to religion and to our post-truth culture. My confidence isn't in me. It's not in my ability. It's not in what I do. It's not in what I say. If my confidence in me, then I'm helpless. I'm hopeless for eternal life. But because my confidence is in Christ, in, in it's what's in he, he's done, I can be certain this evening. We can be certain this evening that I have, past tense, have eternal life to come. Because I believe in Christ. He's the resurrected king of glory, the one who has risen to eternal life. The one that John, just before our passage started, Chris led us through last week in chapter five, verse 12, where John says he is life himself. He's the sustainer and he's the author of our existence. And so we can be totally assured this evening, confident that eternal life is ours because we're confident in Christ. 
And yet in our passage, you'll notice that it's not just confidence in eternal life John wants us to have, but also confidence in approaching God. Uh, Look with me at verse 14. He says, this is the confidence we have in approaching God. Uh, John, in these next few verses, he uses it in reference to prayer. And yet John is still hanging this off his line of his confidence in Christ. And John says that if your confidence is in Christ, well, you can be confident in approaching God, confident in prayer that he hears you. But, you know, I find uh, that prayer is just the most amazing litmus test uh, to what my confidence in God is really like. And I, I have an example from from this week, even, you know, uh, last Sunday, one of the best things about um, church being online is that you can listen to a whole load of services from around the world and up and down the country. And last Sunday, I listened to about five sermons. I'm not saying that because the trends, that's the first time I've probably done ever, anything like that. Uh, but I listened to five sermons and I was feeling on top of the world. And you know what? I, I was praying like I was been praying before. I felt such a confidence, such a, a joy in coming towards prayer, approaching God like that. And yet a few days earlier, it was a very different story. A few days earlier, I, I hadn't listened to any sermons. I hadn't read any part of the Bible. And, and I don't know about you, whether you can relate to this, but I felt such a, a coldness, a, a deadness in my heart. I felt, you know, God doesn't want to hear me in, in the state that I am. He doesn't want to hear from me. Why in the world would I want to start praying when I haven't heard from him? Maybe we might be able to relate to that. And yet what has it been exposed as I've been preparing this passage is what my confidence was in. You see, my confidence in that week wasn't in Christ when I was coming to God in prayer. It was in me. It was the worthiness or the unworthiness that I felt in myself that decided whether or not I had the ability to come before God in prayer. And it wasn't Christ that was my confidence. I might know the ins and the outs theologically that, yes, I come before God in prayer through Jesus. But practically working itself out, it felt like my confidence was in me. And if I had done daily quiet times or if I listened to a sermon that dictated how fit I felt in approaching God. When I forgot that even on my best day, the Bible says my good deeds were like filthy rags in his sight. My confidence can only and ever be in Christ. That's what John points us to. That's what he's been pointing us towards in his whole letter. Confidence in Christ, because it's Christ's performance that matters, not my performance that merits my approach before God. It's not about my feelings. It's about faith and trust in what Christ has done. You know, I love what Hebrews chapter four, verse 16 says, says these words. It says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the son of God, that's our confidence. It says, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Confidence in Christ. But secondly, this evening, Uh, continuing in sin, continuing in sin from verses 16 to 18. 
Now, probably when it was read out, the most confusing part of our passage, and maybe in this whole letter of 1 John, is what John means when he's talking about sin. It's a sin that leads to death and a sin that doesn't lead to death. Uh, But then he says, all sin is wrongdoing, and yet no one born of God continues to sin. Yet we should pray for someone if they do sin. And so there's all of these strands and it can seem a bit confusing on the surface of thing. What's going on here? Well, do you know what's clear in this section is that John seems to explain that there are almost two types of sin. There's one that leads to death and there's one that doesn't. Now, when we're talking about such topics like this, about sin and death, such weighty and important topics, it's pretty crucial this evening that we know Uh, which one's which. It's a bit like a bomb disposal unit. Uh, It's not good enough for the bomb disposal unit to look at the wires and go, ah, I'm not really sure which one. Uh, It doesn't really matter. Uh, No, these are pretty important issues at stake here. And so we need to know uh, which sin leads to death and which sin doesn't. That's pretty important, right? Well, do you know, a helpful way of working out what John means is by looking at the way that John has already explained this in his letter already, the things we've seen so far. You see, we've heard most weeks, haven't we, that this letter is being written because these Christians, this church that John's writing to, they have people within the church that are teaching them the wrong thing. That John says that they're leading them astray. And it seems like they're doing that by refusing to believe in the Lord Jesus. They're denying him in some way. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 22 says... Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? Chapter 4, verse 3, John says, Every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. And then there's a big commandment that comes in John's letter. Chapter 3, verse 23, John says, And this is his command to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. And that would make sense, wouldn't it? That this is the sin that leads to death. Because John, just prior to our passage started in verse 12 of chapter 5, John said, whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. To reject Jesus is the sin that leads to death because ultimately we reject the one in whom there is life. And therefore the one born of God cannot go on rejecting Christ or continuing to sin. There might be various sins that we struggle with in the Christian life and that we fail and we fall short in our Christian walk. But the sin that leads to death is rejecting the one in whom there is life, eternal life. And to reject him is to reject the life that he offers. And yet in this section, as you read through, it's interesting, isn't it? That the focus of what John is saying is not on the person sinning, but rather the person, whoever it might be, who is watching someone in the church falling into sin. Look with me at verse 16. He says, if you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray for them. And God will give them life. John here, he's tying us back to what we saw a few verses ago about prayer and the confidence that we have in Christ to pray and to ask things uh, according to his will. 
And yet the focus here is on Christians, Christian brothers and sisters actively praying for one another when they see areas of each other's lives that don't honour Jesus. It really plugs into the theme that we've seen stretch right the way through 1 John, that we are to love one another. And in fact, that seems that this is one of the biggest proofs that we belong to God, that we love one another. John 1 John chapter 4 verse 16, John says, so we have come to know and to believe the love God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in them. And yet John shows us that one of the biggest ways that we can show love to one another is to pray for one another. Praying in particular, specifically, that we wouldn't fall further into sin. You know, it might be that we're very proactive when we see others fall into sin and we either love telling them about areas in which they fall short or we love telling other people about areas that other people fall short in. And yet John says, tell God, tell God because he has he has the power and he has the actual capacity and the power to change people's hearts and yet it might be that we that when we see sin in others it, it might be we behave in the complete opposite way we maybe don't think it's our responsibility we don't think it's any uh part of our business uh, what they get up to is their own business and we turn a blind eye to it and yet john shows us that part of what it means to be a church family brothers or sisters, what it means to love one another is not to be passive with one another, but to be proactive in praying for one another, praying that God would give them life if we see areas in each other's lives where we are turning away from the way that God would have us live. And it might not seem a very loving thing to do, but John says it's the very essence of love that we pray for one another, praying that God we give them life. That brings us to our third section, third and final point this evening, which is, again, we've come full circle. I've called it Confidence in Christ, part two. Uh, this is how it ends uh, from uh, to the end of the passage. Now, I'm guessing that when it was read out, this passage was read out, when it got to the last verse, uh, we probably thought, well, that's a weird one to end the letter. Uh, where did that come from? It's a bit like watching uh, one of my favourite films, uh, The Sound of Music. Yeah, it's one of my favourite films. I love this film. It's about like watching the film and you know the uh, the family, I'm going to spoil the film, uh, they escape, uh, they, they go off on the hills, uh, the Austrian hills, they're singing, it's so wonderful, uh, the credits roll and then the last thing that you see uh, is this message pop up saying, and the Muller family won the singing competition. And you kind of think, I know that was part of the film, but that's a really random end to the movie. Uh, maybe that's not a helpful illustration, but that's kind of the best that I came up with. Uh, but it just seems so random. That's the point, right? It's a random way to end this letter. Dear children, uh, keep yourselves from idols. And I don't think John is being random here because rather in our last section, John again points us to the confidence we have in Christ. Look with me at verse 20 just before. He says, we know also that the son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know him 
who is true. And we are in him who is true by being in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. John uses, I wonder if you spotted it, he uses that word know again. He wants us to know that Jesus, when we look at him, Jesus has come to give us understanding of who God is. He's the one who's made God known. And this is a huge theme with John. Uh, we don't just see it in this letter of one John, but we, we see it even in his gospel that he wrote, in the gospel of John. And you, if you remember the, the chapter that starts that great gospel off, uh, John says that Jesus, he's the word uh, who was with God, the word who was God, and the word that has been made flesh and has made his dwelling among us. Uh, Colossians 1 says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Uh, Jesus is given the name Emmanuel, God with us. And John says, he picks up on this theme and he says that Jesus, when he's come, he's come and he's given us understanding to reveal to the world who the true God is. So with that in mind, uh, let's come back and think about this random ending to the letter of 1 John and the connection maybe with idolatry. You see, an idol, as John and the church back then would have known it, well, it's an attempt, isn't it, to visualise the invisible, an attempt to make God in our own image. And yet John, just before that verse, has just been saying that Jesus, he's done that already. He has revealed who God is. He reveals the true God that exists. You see, John is confident in who Christ is, the one who makes God known. And therefore, any attempt to visualise God anywhere else, it's idolatry, isn't it? It's a false God being represented when Christ is the true God and eternal life. And, you know, if that's true, then the application really at the end is going to be to keep ourselves from idols, to keep ourselves away from things that distract and replace Christ. Now, of course, idols in the West, um, the idols we have here around us aren't usually figures, physical representations of God that are, are made out of metals and, and of wood, but rather our replacements of God that we fashion in our own image. Well, they often take a more subtle approach, don't they? Uh, John Calvin, he famously quoted that our hearts, our hearts are idol factories. They're constantly looking uh, at things in the world and treasuring them like they are God, treasuring them above Christ. Of making gods out of things that aren't gods, of worshipping them with our time and our money and our affection. You know, I came across a really great song uh, recently by a guy called Jimmy Needham. Uh, in one of his songs called Clear the Stage. And one of the verses, he describes what an idol looks like. And he says this, he says, anything I put before my God is an idol. Anything I want with all my heart is an idol. Anything I can't stop thinking of is an idol. And anything that I give all of my love to is an idol. And John here, he urges us right at the end of his letter, the last thing, the, the take home application, keep 
Guard yourselves, rather, from idols. Guard yourselves from replacing Christ with something that isn't God, and yet we treat as God. John says Christ, he is the true God. Look to him. There is someone. He is someone who can hold the weight of our affection and our love and our worship, and and he won't let us down. He won't fail. He won't buckle under any weight of investment that we put in him, any weight of our affection. You see, this is the madness of idolatry and anything else. It doesn't just give our praise and our worship to something that's not worthy of it, but something that distracts us from the greatest joy that we could ever imagine, looking to Christ. The one that John says right the way through this letter and right at the end here, the one that we are never, ever, ever to take our eyes off from looking on, the one that we are to set our hearts on, the one in whom there is full forgiveness of sin, the one in whom there is eternal life, the one who can bring certainty and hope and peace with God into our hearts this very evening in knowing him. He is the true God and eternal life. And John says, dear children to end, keep yourselves from idols. I'm going to pray as we close our time and we uh, carry on in our service together. Let's pray in response. Our Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for your word. And we thank you so much that it reveals who you are. And we thank you that we can be confident, so confident this evening in you, that you have eternal life in you and you have eternal life to give us this evening. And we can be confident even speaking at this very moment to you coming before your throne. We can be confident even though we're sinful, even though you're holy. We're confident not in our own efforts, but Christ in what you've done. And we pray this evening that as we go into this week, that we wouldn't be people who place things above you, that place our hearts and our affections on things that are worthless compared to you, but that rather we would walk faithfully, holy before you, confident in you, our God, that you are the one who is coming to the world to save us, to love us and to give us life in your name. We praise you, Lord Jesus. Amen.